Hello and welcome to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm Andy. And I'm John. We've assembled a list of film scores that are considered worth talking about, and we're assigning them to ourselves by random drawing. And this time, the luck of the draw gave us Lalo Schifrin's score to the 1968 detective movie, Bullet. Bullet was written by Alan Trustman and Harry Kleiner, based on the novel Mute Witness by Robert L. Pike. It was produced by Philip D'Antoni, and it was directed by Peter Yates. Andy, what is Bullet like? cop movie uh-huh. it's a detective movie okay it's a mystery movie is it and it's got a famous car chase right in the middle of it where the cars chase each other and it stars steve mcqueen i think that sums it up yeah steve mcqueen plays the title character detective frank bullet it's also got robert vaughn as the oily politician chalmers and jacqueline bissett as bullet's girlfriend kathy is chalmers a politician i thought so <laughs> Okay. Uh, So Lieutenant Bullet is assigned to protect a mob witness who's about to give Senate testimony. That things don't go the way they're supposed to, and the next thing you know, he's bending the rules and chasing some mysterious criminals all up and down the hills of San Francisco, like uh, like in a cop movie. Like in a cop movie. Good enough. Good enough. All right, Andy, I want to start out by asking you a question. Shoot. How did this get into our bucket? Uh, well, to reveal a little about how we put together the bucket in the first place, one of the first things I did was dump in all of the AFI 250 scores that were their long shortlist prior to making the 25 top scores that we talked about at the beginning of this podcast series. And Bullet was one of their top 250 scores, so that seemed like an obvious first thing to drop in there. And then that was corroborated by two of the other, you know, top scores lists that I found online out of about, I don't know, 10 or 15 that I was using to collate things at the beginning. And since then, we've added to the bucket, and we've added it a little bit. But uh, yeah, it seemed like sort of an obvious pick for those reasons. All right. I mean, I was excited about it when we pulled it out of there. I thought it sounded like it was going to be real good time. I had a pretty good time, so uh, sounds like you didn't. So how it went with me was that I was excited to do it because I really like Lalo Schifrin. I thought he was going to write cool, jazzy music for a cool cop movie. And so I went and I watched just the opening sequence, the main titles. And sure enough... There's some cool heisty business going on and there's stylish lettering that's uh, going every which way across the screen and there's this awesome music and I was so into it. I was like so happy I was going to get to watch this movie. But like I said, I just watched the title sequence first and then I came back a day or two later, watched the whole movie, starting again with the title sequence, which I again really liked. And on the strength of that predisposition, that got me, I don't know, 30, 40 minutes into the movie where I felt like, okay, I'm, I'm with this. This, is, this has a lot more air in it than I was expecting. This is very um, raw and taking its time, and but there's no... The movie you're talking about, not the score yet. Well, well both, I guess. I'm not talking about the score yet because there is no score yet. Yeah, I was going to say, it, it got you through to 40 <laughs> minutes to the next cue. Well, yeah, before the next cue came in at 39 minutes and 11 seconds into the movie, I wrote it down. Uh-huh. <laughs> in that intervening time, I started to wonder wh- what... What the idea here was, and at 
just didn't get it. The movie was just on some wavelength. It was so clearly trying to be on a wavelength that I didn't understand and I didn't understand how the music was meant to help me relate to it or whether it even was trying. Turns out there is very, very little music. I don't know if you did any calculations about how little music there is relative to other short scores we've talked about, like Rocky. I think there's less music than that, and I think it's been chosen to be in odd places and not to be in a lot of places where it seems like you might want music to be. I didn't understand why, and I didn't know <laughs> I didn't know why I was going to have to talk about it. That's how I felt. <laughs> I didn't know that's what you were going to say. Well, I'm not coming from there, but happy to talk through that with you. As far as how much music there is and whether I calculated, I did kind of start to tally it up, but I just feel like we've said a number of times on this show, like, well, this must be the shortest score we're ever going to talk about. And so uh, let's stop saying that. I guess there are some (laughs) short scores out there that still people love and think are interesting. And I actually started thinking, like, what would be the shortest possible score that would make such an impression that people would talk? Could you have, like, just one piece of music in the middle of a movie that works so well that people are like, oh, that movie has great music and it's only three minutes long? Probably. That could probably happen. This isn't that. This has about 17, 18 minutes of real score music in it. And then it's got about six minutes of source music, which is pretty significant. And then a lot of that is cut down from what was actually recorded. There's like 15 more minutes if you listen to the entire track of each of those source cues. So there's about 40 minutes of music written for the movie, and you can divide it up one way or the other. Yeah, well, I feel like the Rocky score is kind of what you just said. It's got a piece of music in the middle of it that works so well and is so (laughs) charismatic and memorable that it's worth talking about, and people love it for that reason, and there's not that much music otherwise. Right. That's not the case here, is it? To me, the most memorable music is that opening sequence. And then... I mean, I would say the standout in this movie, at least for me experiencing it, was the chase scene, which it's commonly said, oh, but he didn't score the chase scene. You know, the famous, famous car chase in this movie, which is like everyone's top car chase in all movie time. Sure. Which I thought was pretty good. I'd never seen it before. Yeah, it's a good car chase. Pretty satisfying. I think part of why it stands up is because... They just look like cars chasing each other, like cars going really fast. They don't fly. They don't flip in the air and jump from (laughs) one platform to another and do crazy car stuff. They just do normal car stuff fast. They do regular car stuff, but they're being driven by, you know, hotshot drivers. Yeah. Steve McQueen wanted to do as much of his own driving as possible, and he is indeed driving the car for a lot of the shots, but... Noted stunt driver Bud Eakins is his stunt driver for the movie. And I think the guy driving the bad guy car is, in fact, that driver. I think that's the stunt driver who kind of got to be a character in the movie. Oh, really? I see. I mean, this happens at all because Steve McQueen was a driver, was a race car driver. That was his his love. And I read that Peter Yates, the director, also had worked in the race car world, had like managed a driving team or something like that. McQueen hired him for this on the strength of a very similar car chase he had done for a British movie a couple years earlier called Robbery, which I looked at. It has a lot of the same shots and the same feel, the same kind of unpolished kind of rumbling, you know, you can feel the camera shake kind Mm -hmm. of feel to it. And I think that you get this sense of like really knowing and loving cars in it, which a lot of car chases these days tend to have kind of a matchbox car fantasy quality to it. And this is the opposite of that. 
So I enjoyed that scene. Anyway, it's unscored, it's true, while they're going fast, but if you take the slow speed chase section of it that precedes it and builds up to it as part of it, that part is scored. There's, you know, three or four minutes of build-up music, mm-hmm. low speed chase music, and I think that's a really great cue that finds just the right tempo. Schifrin calls it shifting gears, and I think that he picks just the right places to add a little more to, you know, step you up bit by bit slowly to this level of tension that's going to release into the chase. Well, that's interesting. I agree. I think this is a really good cue, and I think Schifrin... Listen, I'm always going to enjoy hearing Lala Schifrin music. He's got this panache, and I've just always dug these sounds and he's you know really skillful about it and yeah you're right that this cue builds up very concertedly you can take note of the individual spots where he decided oh here's where we ratchet up another step like he hits the cut to the interior of the bad guy's car with the saxophone entrance then cuts back and forth a couple more times and then he does it again on one of the shots from this cool angle from down below the dashboard looking up at the driver and he's right on that cut too with the string entrance this time. They're kind of prowling around each other, Steve McQueen's Mustang and the bad guy's Charger and eventually McQueen outmaneuvers them and he appears in their rearview mirror and Schifrin is right on that as well. kind of builds up with these more and more kind of song-like elements. Like, it gets more and more jazzy and sounds like a kind of a put-together song, like you can hear him putting it together. And I think each of those elements that goes into that thickening jazz texture that's coming together is really nicely chosen. I like that the saxophones on top have this kind of cap to the line where they keep going up to the same note. has this feeling of kind of a contained tension like it can't get above there but it keeps bucking up against that same uh-huh. cap and then also when this deep pedal like the very bottom of the trombone range the lowest possible notes on the trombones come in there why not yeah i love it it feels to me like it's these hard limits between which all of this exciting action is building up have these clear bounds put on it but it's also this dance-like groove you know i felt myself yeah dancing in the seat getting ready and then kapow when it breaks out you feel like this is what i've been getting excited for it definitely makes you feel like this is what i've been getting excited for but i wanted to come back to the word that you used kapow i don't know if it's a word <laughs> builds up this tension and then it's released into the chase yeah the way the movie is the way it got released the music is cut off by the sound of the bad guy car peeling out and burning rubber and like now we're into the chase in earnest now they're really pedal to the metal and jumping up and down the hills and stuff the preliminary dancing around is done and now we're in the action now this whole action which you're right is very skillfully and excitingly shot is only scored with the sounds of the car chase itself with the engines and the squealing and you know the car sound effects Mm -hmm. the interesting thing though is that in fact Schifrin did write some music for that fast part of the chase that he himself suggested be taken out I didn't hear about this what did he write I don't think that he actually completed a fully polished and finished 
cue for this, but he wrote at least some material for it. I know this because my friend Cliff, friend of the show, was at an event where this chase scene was shown as it is in the finished movie, and then with a reconstructed version of the original Schifrin music that was in there for longer. But he said that it was Schifrin himself who recommended that they only use the car sounds for the intense part of the chase. Yeah, I saw an interview where Schifrin said that Yates asked him to write music and he said it wouldn't be appropriate, but I didn't hear that he had at any point started to put anything together. So Cliff told me that the chase scene with the music in it, which neither of us were able to find, so I'm sorry we don't have that to play for you, but it felt much less visceral and more hip. Not having the music kind of characterizing, you know, who's doing well in the chase and things like that made it feel more unpredictable and visceral. Yeah, I would imagine. Yeah, and I can imagine that. And I think that this car chase is kind of a special case where letting the music lay out and letting the sounds of what is actually happening be enough sound for us to hear. I kind of thought of like the chariot race in Ben-Hur. You know, that movie is scored nearly wall to wall with the biggest, grandest music possible, but that music lays out to hear the ancient Rome version of this car chase happening. Yeah, I feel like this is a thing we've talked about in multiple occasions where if you want an action scene to feel thrillingly physical, the music would work against that, so the music drops out to let you, yeah, just feel the roar of the rapids or the rumbling yeah. of the buffalo or the chariots or whatever. Yeah, it's a standard thing to do. I just thought it was actually really well negotiated in this movie where you got both the energy that the music wanted to impart, but also the sense that the chase was interrupting the kind of packagedness of the music with its immediacy. Yeah, well, I think it works in this one spot, in this special case, like I say, for the big car chase. But I just don't think that those are the terms that the rest of the movie and the rest of the score are working on. Well, I'll counter that because when you said that the movie seemed to have so much space in it and you couldn't really clock its heartbeat or didn't make sense pacing-wise to you. Yeah, like this chase is smack in the middle of the movie, then so much incredibly slow stuff happens after it. Yeah, the pacing out of the whole through line seemed weird to me. I was surprised and pleased by how slow and at least sort of superficially thoughtful the camera work and the directing was. I'm not sure it's thinking about anything, but it definitely has a deliberateness and a kind of poise to the way that it is shot and edited. I didn't expect that based on, you know, what I knew about the movie, which was basically that it had Steve McQueen in a car going fast and that his name was a gun, that he had a very, very dangerous name. That's basically (laughs) all I knew. No, his name is Whiskey, although that's got an extra vowel in it. Yeah, he could kill you with just his name. But then he's actually not like that, and the movie's not. not like that. He's actually kind of quiet and laid back, and I frankly didn't get that much of a sense of his having any kind of remarkable personality. Did you? Exactly, yeah. I think that's right, and I think the movie knows that it's doing that, and that there's something to be enjoyed about that. <laughs> I mean, I wondered, honestly, whether the cool badassery that I felt like I was supposed to be attributing to him, is that really from the end of the movie he gets fed up with Robert Vaughn's machinations and he says a curse at him that starts and ends with a lot of the same letters as his name? Isn't that like a notable use of that word in movies? And in fact, is that maybe where he got his name? (laughs) 
you know, the movie is not, certainly the story of this movie is not that distinctive. It's got some fun details in it. It also doesn't really make any sense. It's just kind of one of those stories in one of those movies. I feel like you could throw a dart at the TV listings today and any, you know, police procedural show that turns up on any channel has at least as much sophistication and detective plotting as this movie. Yeah. It has, I would say, one nugget of spoilery inspiration in the plotting, which since we don't really need to talk about the plot, we don't need to talk about. But I think basically the reason that it had to be adapted from this book, Mute Witness, is because there was this one idea in the book that they took over. But yes, the rest of it is just stuff that would happen in a detective movie. What seemed most interesting about it to me was the fact that he went and got Peter Yates, this British director with a not very Hollywood kind of camera style, to make a kind of brooding, slow-paced take on that. I liked it, and it reminded me of when I've read pulpy crime novels, which I've read a few of. Have you ever read one of those books with the gun and the broad on the cover? Probably. (laughs) They are to books what you were just saying this is to movie stories. Like, yeah, they're all the same and the same stuff happens in them. And what they're giving you is a kind of an atmosphere and a worldview, a kind of texture to the prose. It's all this derived from Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett of kind of the world being run down the hero being fundamentally broken and disappointed and run down person working out the crime you know is a triumph but in a context of downtroddenness and did you get that from this i got a very quiet version of that what i got from this was that sense that the story doesn't matter that much as long as you believe that the world is a certain way And I thought the music was there doing that. And yeah, it did give me that. And I think TV procedurals give people that. I think that's why they watch them over and over. You go to a certain world. It's always a certain way that the cops always have a certain tone of voice. And it... uh... Yeah, man, I just don't think he had really a tone of voice here. The music that I felt like was supposed to tell me about what our downtrodden hero is like at home. We see him buying groceries and stealing a newspaper. Well, I mean, I think that is the defining... You know, as much as there's characterization in the movie, it is when he goes to the corner store and buys seven TV dinners and that's his grocery shopping for the week. That's when he gets the most character music of the whole movie. It's like, this is who this guy is. He's just barely a person outside of his doing his cop stuff. Why did you say seven when it's so memorably six TV dinners? Like he gets three pairs of them, two at a time. Boom, boom, boom. Stacks them on top of each other. Pretty sure it's seven. (laughs) I said seven because it's a whole week, but I also think that's how many it is. Let's let's look. Look. All right, here he goes. Yeah, here's two, two, two. Okay, now pause as he's lifting the entire stack. All right, pause. And count. What has he got? He's got seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. All right, so what must have happened is that we see him, <laughs> we see him stack six up and put them in a pile and then when he reaches down to pick up that pile he gets one more. He gets the one that was sitting underneath where he put the pile on top of. Yeah. So he's obviously practiced this. He fooled me with his Swanson sleight of hand. <laughs> he, is, he is a magician of sorts. But yeah, it's because he is so used to this. He's just He does this every week. He gets seven TV dinners. Now he's set for food. Now he's going to go back to his apartment. And the first thing we learn about him is that he apparently didn't go to sleep until the morning. He's got this relationship with Jacqueline Bissett, which basically consists of them uh, hooking up and then him having nothing to say to her and not understanding anything about her. That's his character. He's like a stunted person and at the end that's the last shot right yeah okay so anyway this music though (laughs) 
again, I like this music and I'm happy to be listening to it. I just didn't quite buy that it was uh, about this guy. I think this music is cooler than he actually is. That's it. That's exactly it. It is cooler than he is, but that's what those crime novels sell, is that being broken has a secret, dark glamour to it. Is he broken? I guess? We don't know. It's just, He's just a cipher, but it's that kind of story and it's that kind of movie, so he's that kind of character. That's how it read to me without a lot of having to reach for it. Well, I mean, we're talking about whether this cue gets that across because we don't really have any other data points here. This is one of very few instances where the music bothers to say anything about it. You know, I could... Listen, I was I was reluctant... <laughs> <laughs> I was reluctant to go into my shtick where I rattle off all the important stuff that happens in this movie that doesn't have music for it like I did for Out of Africa. Yeah, let's just take it as given that most of the stuff yeah. in this movie doesn't have music for it. Most of it, and again, I'm really trying to hold myself back from just going through that song and dance again, but yeah, there's all this hospital stuff and surgery stuff and police stuff and then plenty of action stuff and chasing stuff and then also, you know, quiet moments of interpersonal drama Drama and interpersonal, not very much drama. All of it, all of it gets put in a big bag that doesn't have music on it. So when I'm faced with that, I get antsy about where the music is and why it's in some places and why it's not in other places. And John, if you didn't have to do a podcast about it, would you still feel antsy? Is that where that comes from? Or is it really coming from your personal desire to be helped by music whenever you watch any movie? I think I would still feel antsy about it if I didn't have to do this podcast. You don't have to do this podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Once you announce that you're going to do an episode about Bullet, though, you do have to. You told them you were going to. It's a promise. Yeah, I know. And I asked you if there was any way we could renege on that promise. And you said no. And you're right. Yeah. We have to do this. Like, but, you know, who wants to listen to me have my voice go up an octave and say, why is there music here and not here? Who, like, who cares? That's, at the end of the day, what I came away from this movie saying, like, why, why are you going to make me go on a podcast and whine about whether there's not enough music in this? Who cares? <laughs> Having listened to some podcasts, John, I've learned that it is amazing what people will listen to. <laughs> <laughs> so just go for it. But yeah, actually, in terms of, you know, why isn't there music here or here or here? Yeah, there's no music throughout. And as I often say to you after you do that, <laughs> don't you think they meant it that way? No, like, I don't <laughs> think that it was intentional. I don't. Because here, I'll prove it to you. Because if you take the music's own word for it, if you take the terms that the music sets out for you in the one or two spots where there is music, why doesn't it follow through on that? There is this one running around chase scene where they're in the hospital and the bad guy comes to try to finish off uh, the guy that he didn't quite kill yet and Bullet right. is... This is that second cue. This is what happens after 40 minutes. That's right. This is 39 minutes and 11 seconds in the movie. They're in the hospital and Bullet's chasing this guy around the hospital. And this sounds cool. This sounds great. I really like these like, little piano murmurs, these little... Yeah. Blah, 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 blah. It's these little blats. I'm such a sucker for low piano in an uh, action sequence, which yeah. they basically, every TV show for 15 years, like from the late 60s to the early 80s, this was just happening all the time. Like some action, here comes the piano. Piano bass moving around. I love it. 
Well, I mean, this movie is 1968. This is a move that Lalo Schifrin had already patented two years earlier. 1966 is when he scored the first episode of Mission Impossible, in which he kind of lays out this exact texture of this low piano and bongos, crucially. Yeah, so, but here in this movie, in this hospital scene, the cue starts out with these, like, erratic piano murmurs, and then later on, they're running down a hallway and there's more regular rhythm with these awesome bongos on top. The bass is going... And I love it. This is the sound of this happening. Then the chase slows down. The music kind of slinks back into these spare, odd percussion sounds that perfectly illustrate the tentativeness of them creeping around. Yeah, this bit with the kind of unmeasured percussion is where the bad guy is hiding and Bullet is trying to sneak up on him so quietly that he can't hear. You know, they don't know where the other is in a darkened room and that's why suddenly the rhythm goes out of it. Right, so it's important that it's quiet, but if it were just actually being quiet, if there were no music to demonstrate how quiet it is, it wouldn't have the same effect of quietness as quiet music does. <laughs> right. You know, we're being shown the difference between something and nothing by having these intermittent sounds. Mm -hmm. You know, they make you kind of lean forward in your chair and try to make sure you're catching everything. Yeah, it's the classic, like, a few pebbles roll. Oh, did someone move those or did they just happen to roll at that moment? Yeah, having just a little bit of spare things going by to fill out the space, kind of like I said about that bare clip-clopping sound at the end of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, that it's just like marking out the volume smoke around the outline of the tension. Mm -hmm. This is the same effect, and the movie picks this one sequence to apply it to, and it works. Cut to the end of the movie, the climactic denouement of everything where they finally track down the right guy and they're in the airport and they have to get everybody off the airplane and then this guy jumps out of the plane and then Bullet chases him across the tarmac and they shoot at each other and they're in the airport terminal and all of this stuff plays... No, in the terminal there's music again, very similar music. But only at the very end, only at the very end of this whole sequence, but there's a lot of time that goes by in the terminal without any music. To me, it just felt really weird. This is the action climax of the movie. This is a real thing happening. You showed me what a thing happening sounds like. Why would you not do it here? Yeah, then the music does come back when Bullet pulls out his gun and the final sneak up on the guy, and then that builds up to the final shootout. It's these rising string tremolos, pretty simple stuff with some ratchety percussion sounds, and this works. And I just kept thinking, why did you choose to not work this whole time before then? I'm just surprised that you didn't think that it worked. I mean, you thought that the car chase worked, I guess you're saying because it had loud noises during it. Like, you don't feel that. Yeah, I was saying that the car chase felt like a singular, you know, exception that proves the rule. I thought that running around on the tarmac was a cool kind of, you know, 
they're lost in the darkness. There's these huge planes going by. He could shoot from any angle. He doesn't know where he is. And the kind of... Uh, Maybe I'll let the tarmac sequence go, but they're in the terminal and exactly the same kind of sneaking and trying to run up to find the guy at the gate. Exactly the same kind of stuff that does get scored at the end of the sequence happens at the beginning of the sequence without scoring. To me, it felt I intuitively understood it as marking that there is them waiting for the guy and then realizing which plane he's on. Then he boards the plane and they see each other. Then the guy breaks out in a run and now we start this tarmac sequence and that is its own sequence. And then there's kind of a turning point when now they're back in the airport and that part is scored. It felt like a natural re-entry to me. I didn't feel like it was late. But you obviously are saying that you felt a lack. You felt like, where's the connective tissue to bring this all together? Yeah, I just feel like all of these long sequences where they're driving around San Francisco or they're staking out the guy's room, then the gunman comes in and shoots them, and then they go to the hospital and they have surgery. They ransack a lady's suitcase in a hotel. Boy, did that suitcase ransacking thing take forever. And then they wait for the like whatever precursor to the fax machine is. What is it called? A telex where they send the picture over the phone and it's a telecopier but it's a xerox magnifax brand telecopier and i believe i read that that is where the term fax machine mostly comes from this brand magnifax all right well it sure takes a while and we sure watch it take as long as it takes And the fact that none of this stuff, look, I rattled off a bunch of stuff after all that didn't have music after saying that I wouldn't, I'm sorry, but all of this stuff not having music, I think it's important to point out that that is making a statement to the audience. It's not simply a lack of something, it's laying out the terms of things, whether they meant it to be or not, it's an assertion about how to interact with them. Yeah, they chose to do it that way. I think you know that you are saying this was one kind of movie and not another kind of movie. It's just, to me, clear that this is a valid way for a movie to be. Do you think that it's because it had any action in it and it had any thriller mystery stuff in it and to you that's incompatible with such a slow and grounded and unmusical movie as this? I was thinking about that. I I don't think so because I just said that I was really into all of the silence and the space between things and the good, the bad, and the ugly. Well, you know, that's a funny comparison because the good, the bad, and the ugly is a fundamentally musical movie in its outlook and its kind of spiritual approach to movie making and then sometimes it uses silence to be that sometimes it uses silence as a musical effect that's true whereas this yeah i mean i don't know quite how to characterize it but what i'm saying about peter yates's filmmaking is that this is yeah essentially an unmusical mm-hmm. movie which is a way that a movie can be made sure and then it uses music to add that element of Whatever is below the surface in pulp that I was trying to articulate there, to add that element of glamour to the opposite of glamour, you know, this is a movie where the camera just dwells on the realism, to the degree that it's realism, of doctors trying to save someone who's dying and, you know, all the stuff doctors would say to each other, and you get to watch that for 30 seconds straight or whatever it is. Yeah, and not only do you get to watch it, but, like, there's a nurse's shoulder in your way. You can't... There's blurry things blocking the camera. It's really going hard for this cinema verite. You are in the operating room feel to it. 
everyone's different, but I assume, I imagine that if there were no music in this movie, you would meet that somehow. You'd know what that is. Yeah, I think that's right. And that's why I'm pointing out these isolated spots where I feel like music is doing what I expect it to do as what is leading me... To say that the rest is doing it wrong. Leading me on, yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, Andy, when I came to you and I said, uh, is this... <laughs> sure this is really an episode of our show and you said look it can be very short i felt like when you said it can be very short you had you were coming from a similar place as me what did you think there was about this movie and this score that was going to make for a short episode i thought you were going to be like yeah this is what cop music is like there's not very much of it it's not that special i mean it's fine but let's not oversell what this was there's only 15 minutes of it and we were going to be like yeah but it's pretty good <laughs> i thought that's what was going to happen i didn't think you were going to be like this movie didn't make sense to me but that's fine it's interesting all right all right so i thought that the central term we'd be talking about was cool okay i thought we were going to talk about what cool is and now i'm just going to enforce that we talk about what cool is because i think it answers this tension between no music realism and musical fantasy a little bit what is the thing people say about steve mcqueen they certainly say that he was so cool <laughs> is there not some like nickname he had about being cool probably the king of cool yeah that was his thing that was his nickname and i think it just comes very naturally to say he's so cool and it also comes naturally to say this music is cool but as you pointed out as we've been discussing Frank Bullitt is just not that cool. Yeah. He can drive fast, but that is about the only thing that is sort of demonstrably cool if you wanted to point at him. And that one word he says. I feel like those those are his cool attributes. That he swears on screen. Yeah. Yeah. Although, I don't know, it's 1968. Was it still a shocker at that point? It might not have been so shocking. I think it was one of the first movies to use that word. It wasn't the first, but people have speculated about whether it is the first, and then it turns out to not to have not been. Be. All right. Well, my thought about cool while thinking about this movie was that, I mean, it's an old conversation. What is cool? Is it cool to do this? Is it cool to try? Is it cool to not try? Um, is it cool to try to do this podcast? I think that at least one idea of cool, a basic element of what people mean when they say something is cool, is that it is both completely at ease, completely relaxed, and full of vitality and energy. I think that like cool might be, you know, like uh, maximizing both of those or force times relaxedness or something like that is cool. Hmm. And I know you like fake rules and deciding whether they're good rules. So you can think about that. <laughs> but while I was watching this, I, th I don't know that about myself. You know that about me? <laughs> Yeah, you like uh, you like evaluating <laughs> principles that might not be actually <laughs> principles. I've encountered this before. Well, I'm certainly evaluating the principle you just proposed about me. I know, yeah. <laughs> Case in point. I think that Steve McQueen's cool, in this movie especially, is mostly just seeming unruffled and calm, just having a kind of ease about him. Although it's not perfect ease because he's sort of uncomfortable when he's with Kathy and he's sort of uncomfortable all the time, but he is at least <laughs> moving through life slowly and with a relaxed demeanor. And then it's imbued with this idea of his energy or vitality or power by the fact that, yes, he runs and drives a fast car at some points in the movie. And then for the other scenes, there are hints through this music. At least that's how I took it. That, you know, this guy is just walking around on screen, but we know that his baseline, magically, for some reason, is dun 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 dun
that's kind of what puts cool across is that he's not moving like that. He's just <laughs> gliding around very placidly, but the movie is telling you that there's this energy to it. I've been thinking of this the whole time that you're saying, how is this movie not giving me all of that energy? I feel like it tells you that both are here and then you sort of have to combine them magically in your head and the effect of that is that something cool is happening if they actually blend. And I guess you're saying they didn't blend. And for me, yeah, it immediately blended. Starting from that first, that opening sequence that you said did seem cool to you. Yes, it did. In which I would say in that main title music, you're kind of getting both halves from the music because the bass line starts in and is really active and syncopated and grooving. But then the melody doesn't match that at all. It's it's the laziest possible melody. It just kind of leans against this one note, smokes a cigarette. <laughs> and I think it's beautifully lazy the way that it's played. On the soundtrack album that was released at the time, which, as was common at the time, was a complete re-recording of different arrangements, was not actually the music in the movie. They play a more up version of this theme, theme from Bullet. It's just not as cool because it's faster and more energetic and it's so cool in the movie when that guitarist is just just moving his fingers as little as he possibly can. It feels so good. So cool. Yeah, I can't disagree. But then during the rest of the movie, that laziness and that kind of apparent absence of energy is in this realistic style or the unmusical style of the movie and is in uh, Steve McQueen's face. And then every now and then when the music comes in, to me, it wasn't saying something contradictory. It was saying, don't forget, this is all pretty cool, isn't it? And every time it showed up, I was like, thanks for the reminder. Yes, yes, I'm with you. I'm sorry. I wish that I was more with it than apparently I was. Yeah, I'm sorry for you. But I can also, like, I will grant you, it's an odd balance of stuff. They would never make it like this now because it's so, it feels so physical I was think, actually thinking about how Steve McQueen and Peter Yates were both car guys, and then the car scenes really seemed like they had that kind of immediate sense of, you know, having your hands on the wheel and feeling the engine rumbling, and that nowadays everything has this ethereal, weightless quality to it, and that movies are like that generally. Like, this is the opposite of a CGI movie. It's a very grungy, physical world, and I like that. I'm so happy to be put there. But it definitely has a different relationship to the mental space of music than the more ethereal style. You said that Peter Yates, the director, was a not-really-Hollywood guy, and he brought this not-really-Hollywood sense to the movie. Well, I think that things feeling not-really-Hollywood was a really important and desirable vibe for this part of the 60s. I think that there was kind of a reactionary attitude in filmmaking that We don't want to be like all those studio movies, you know, like we're not going to make movies like the man wants us to kind of a thing. And because of that, (laughs) 
I think it's pretty much, I mean, I've heard people say that it's kind of a dark age for film scores because there was this desire to like, you know, that's so, that's typical. That's what you would expect is for music to saw away and tell you what to feel. You know, we don't have to do that anymore. I think that's how the counterculture idea got incarnated in the landscape of film music is basically the idea of, well, we don't have to do that anymore. And that's really what I felt through this is that, yeah, you know, we'll have a little bit of music, but uh, we don't have to actually pay attention to where it is all the time. Yeah. When people talk about Star Wars was the rebirth of the big orchestral film score, which on the Star Wars episode, I think we said is a little overstated, but definitely there was an idea that at the end of the 70s, suddenly they brought it back. You can have a big, fantastical, symphonic sound. It's not just a kind of production, technical craft thing that's returning there. It's an emotional attitude or it's a worldview. It's a mimetic framework that had gone out of fashion and then was coming back in fashion that the music is a part of, but it it does reflect it. And yeah, this movie and its score, I completely agree, characterize a moment when the balance of power between where you go in your head to listen to music and where you go when you're watching, say, a documentary was different. And you're right to associate it with the political and cultural moment at large. I think these things are absolutely synced up and live off of each other. And, you know, if someone wants to write a sociological thesis about how film scores track the American population's uh, (laughs) idea of what success is and and what the meaning of life is, whatever, like, absolutely. I totally think that's true. I just... We assign a lot of papers on this podcast. We're always saying... No, that's my way of saying, now that I have described what the paper would be about, no one ever needs to write or read it because that's all you ever get out of those papers anyway is the description of what they're about yeah this is that moment but do you dislike all movies from that era like i think we've got uh... i went and looked at the list of movies that we've done and tried to map out where they fell on the timeline we have done one other movie from 1968 can you remember off the top of your head i'm trying to remember what it was Wow, no, it's like a blank spot. I feel like you're right. We haven't done movies from this era, but apparently we've done one. We've done one, but it's a kind of a special case. It doesn't... It doesn't relate to its era as clearly. Well, it relates to its era in other ways, but it's a genre piece, so it has special needs. Um, I can't think of a cowboy movie that we did from nope. this era. No, not cowboys. Uh, no, the cowboy movies stop. That's right. There are no more. The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is late. Well, it's late, but it's Italian is why it's late. Right. That's 66, Right. but that's a different timeline. And the Hitchcock movies were earlier... And The Godfather is a little later. To me, The Godfather is the movie I'm thinking of that's the closest in cinematic tone and history to this. I can't think of something more on this one. Interesting. Well, I mean, like, I remember in Jaws saying that Spielberg really has a kind of Altman-like feel. Oh, uh, that's right, yeah. With his camera, but obviously that was part of the resurgence of scoring at the same time. That's, I think, what's so exciting in some ways about Jaws is that it still has the flavor of this era of artsier... Yeah, realism. Yeah, you know, you can see the pores on people's skin and you can feel kind of the relaxed pacing. And yet then it has the fantasy of the big John Williams score, the pirate movie, as we said. And that's a very exciting combination happening around that time. And then things sort of trend toward where the orchestra was coming from there. Yeah, Jaws sure is great. <laughs> well, I was going to say, though, that 
like 1960, we had Psycho, right. and uh, Magnificent Seven is 1960, along with Psycho. Okay, yeah, sure. In 1962 is Lawrence of Arabia and How the West right. Was Won. Fine, yeah. 59 is Ben-Hur. Oh, I see what well, it was in 1968. Yeah, the other 1968 movie we've talked about is Planet of the Apes, which, like I said, uh-huh. stands a little outside of other trends. It does have some action low piano in it. Yeah, that's true. But yeah, I think there really is this hole in the film score timeline. Many people think of what you're calling a hole as a golden age for the artistic depth and quality and ambitiousness of mainstream American movies. Do you dislike that? No. I mean, are you like, yeah, that's not for me? No, I'm not. I think it's just interesting. It's notable that movies went and explored these new attitudes and these new styles without the help of music. That, you know, not enlisting the help of music was sort of one of the new techniques that was being experimented with. All right. So what do you think of my saying that it is enlisting the help of music, but it is not living within the music and the music doesn't have as much primacy in the equation that was tried around that time? Does that sound right to you or do you really Really yeah, feel like, that sounds right. Yeah. So yes, it's a little different to talk about a movie score from this era because it's a little more like talking about the uh, hairstyling <laughs> or props. Like, yeah, did the movie have good props? Yeah, the music is a little more subsidiary. It's still the same art and the same craft in terms of what a musician has to do, but it has a slightly different rank in the hierarchy of the movie making. Well, that's definitely going on. And I think it's really interesting to think about. I think I would have been more on board with that role for music if I had just bought the movie as a whole better, which I guess I uh, have to plead idiosyncrasy for that. All right, so let's just address the other things, and then we'll be done. (laughs) What other things? Well, first of all, let's talk about our sponsor, right? Oh, please. So our sponsor, as has been true for a while now, is Encoda, the subscription service for streaming sheet music to any of your devices. And what we've been doing for our spot since they started sponsoring us is naming something somehow related to the movie that you can look at in Encoda. You can look at the score. Now, this movie does not involve any music, as you're saying. It's not a very musical movie. There's no music in the plot. But John, they do at one point name a classical piece in this movie. (laughs) Can you think when they do that? Steve McQueen says the title of a work of classical music. I was going to say later that I actually went and watched the pilot of Mission Impossible 1966 because I wanted to see what Lalo Schifrin was doing to score that and also because I love the Mission Impossible theme. And uh, at the beginning of that episode, uh, you know, the guy goes to get his secret recorded message and he had his code word is that he has to ask for a specific classical record in a record shop and the guy hands it to him and it's really the secret spy mission recording uh, and I'm conflating it with that. So no, I don't remember... (laughs) what piece he mentions in this movie. You remember when he goes on his date with Kathy? Yeah. And they go to the restaurant? We're hearing music. We're hearing a, a jazz combo play, and that's I think it's a jazz combo that Steve McQueen himself heard playing in a restaurant and liked the sound of them, so he got them for the movie. That's right. That's who's in the movie. Although, those people posted a message board a few years ago to say that they did play music on set. That was their real group, and they really played their tune, and then when they went to see the movie, it had been replaced by music by a Hollywood composer. It is indeed some Schifrin music we're hearing there, but they sounded very similar to that, they assure us. (laughs) And he did a pretty good job, you know, not perfect, but pretty good matching some composition to the random selections of them playing that the editor had put together. Anyway... Yes, when they're at that restaurant, he calls his partners to let them know where he is in case they need to contact him. 
and he says the name of the restaurant, which was a real restaurant in San Francisco at the time. And it's a cafe called Coffee Cantata. Oh, yeah. Dale? Coffee Cantata, 931. Well, the Coffee Cantata is an actual piece of classical music. That's why the restaurant was called that. (laughs) It's a piece by Bach. It's sort of a unique piece by Bach because Bach didn't write opera and he mostly didn't write, you know, secular dramatic music of any kind. But he did write this one quirky comic cantata, which is just this side of a comic opera about coffee and how amazing coffee is. And it's about a father who wants his daughter to stop drinking coffee, but she'll never stop drinking coffee. This woman right now is singing about how great coffee is. And this is something that Bach wrote. And if you are curious to try your hand at playing the continuo part or <laughs> singing about coffee in German, you can check it out on Encoda, where all of the parts are available in the Breitkopf and Herdl edition. There's also a Novello edition where someone tried to translate it into English because Encoda gives you all these options. John, tell them some more about Encoda. <laughs> this is the second episode in a row where we're playing Bach music that has nothing to do with the movie. <laughs> I know. For the spot. This has a little tiny bit to do with the movie. Look, I'll take it. I had no idea what we were going to play for the Encoda spot this time, so fine. But (laughs) let that take nothing away from the fact that Encoda is a really great resource that gives you access to a wide range of sheet music from the coffee cantata all the way to (laughs) (laughs) modern pop music, theater, what have you. You can find the real editions of it, the real publications. You can mark it up on any of your devices. A low monthly subscription gives you access to the entire catalog, and you never have to worry about whether you have the sheet music that you need wherever you go. It's great for exploring music, great for performing music, great for studying music. It is a rich resource. So go to your app store and download the Encoda app. That's N-K-O-D-A. And check out their free trial that lets you see their whole catalog and (laughs) drink, uh, drink some coffee, I guess. All right, so we can segue from that to just talking about this scene and this music a little bit, because there is, we haven't really mentioned, a reasonable showing of source music in this movie that I think, especially given everything we've said about how the music works in this movie, is fairly important to how the score functions. And here's some of it when they're on this date and they're in this restaurant listening to this combo that we just mentioned. Didn't you feel like this was supposed to be kind of showing how Bullet doesn't fit into the world and this is like the young people, the more together people, Kathy's world is this flute and hmm. the atmosphere. I mean, I did like this moment. I liked the way that the scene was allowed to play musically. It's done in a kind of montage style where we're only hearing the music. We see them talking to each other, but we don't hear the dialogue. So the music does kind of come to the fore here. And even though it's source and not score, this was <laughs> during the part of the movie where I thought I was going to be really into it and I was into this moment. And then there's other notable source music when, uh, you know, the mobster, we think, who's being protected in this hotel room, we think, (laughs) he flips on the radio and listens to some loud music because he's a classless guy. Hey, hold it down, will you? I'm sorry. And then later that night, at one in the morning when they get the suspicious call, he's listening to this slightly more late night jazz music. And then when something terrible happens, there's juxtaposed against it, this very one-in-the-morning, easy-listening kind of radio music.
And these are all cues written special by Lala Schifrin that you can hear in their entirety on the soundtrack. also hear reworkings of these tunes to stand alone on the soundtrack album that was put out. And I thought all of these were nicely done and did contribute to what I was saying before, that kind of sense of a pulp universe. How'd you feel about them? Yeah, sure. I agree. (laughs) Nicely done. I mean, it's kind of like Pink Panther, right? Where this really accomplished jazz composer of the day wrote a bunch of music that was going to be heard playing on record players and over radios in the movie. And then that all got put on a soundtrack album. That's a really cool album to listen to. And yeah, listen to this album. Yeah, and just about Lalo Schifrin, as the musical polyglot composers of Hollywood go, he, I think, had some of the best jazz credentials of all of them. I mean, like we were talking about, Henry Mancini could kind of do it all and could really write in these popular styles. And Elmer Bernstein trying his hand at jazz and doing an impressive job that sold well, but Lalo Schifrin actually arranged for and played with big jazz people. Like, he made his break writing a big piece for Dizzy Gillespie and playing piano in Dizzy Gillespie's band, and then later playing with and arranging for uh, Xavier Cugat, the big Latin jazz Hmm. band leader. He was a for real, for real jazz pianist and arranger, and I think you hear that edge in terms of really being able to make the real thing. I mean, he writes the Muzak that you hear at the airport, and then it's on the album. The background track at the airport, which is like a Christmas song, and it sounds like real Muzak. Absolutely, he knows how to do this and is clearly taking pleasure in, yeah, all of these specific different kinds of prop music. And I thought it made a a nice world that this movie exists in. You were going to say something enthusiastic about loving Lala Schifrin generally, so maybe you should go into that. Well, I mean, loving Lala Schifrin and specifically, like I said, the Mission Impossible theme, which was, again, kind of an early obsessive nugget for me to discover what music could do in conjunction with picture. And on its own, I listened to the Mission Impossible theme and the soundtrack album that got put out for the Mission Impossible TV series an awful lot as a kid. Again, one of these albums that is, you know, re-recordings and new arrangements of music that was actually used on screen. Yeah, so like I said, I did watch the pilot of the TV show and there's more music in it than this movie. It's definitely denser with music, as you might imagine, for something that is, you know, really explicitly heist genre-ish. But there was definitely less than I thought there would be. It still had this feeling of air around things that feels like a different wavelength to me now. You know, there's some action music where there's action stuff happening, but then like there's a long sequence where there's a safe cracker cracking a safe and there's no music for that. That felt very empty to me. And there just seemed to be overall a greater willingness to let things breathe with space around them and not overcomplicate it, not overpackage it or polish it with music. Even something as musically noteworthy as Mission Impossible, which now I'm going to talk about because I don't think we're probably not going to talk about a Mission Impossible movie, are we? Yeah, probably not. I think the Mission Impossible theme is a work of super genius. (laughs) It's the coolest thing in the world. It is cool, I think, largely because of its rhythm, because it is in five time. 
I think I saw Schifrin quoted as saying, you know, most music that you would dance to is in two or in four because people have two legs, and he wanted to write something for aliens with five legs to dance to. He didn't mean that, though. No, he didn't, because it actually is much more, uh, I think he was being flip, but the theme, the rhythm to it is actually very regimented in a very cool way where it's so simple, it's just a group of three, and then another group of three, and then a group of two, and another group of two. Just three, three, two, two. Add those up, you get ten. We're talking about you know, half beats essentially, so it adds up to a five-beat group. It gives just this incredible propulsive, off-kiltered, but still kiltered. It's the <laughs> perfect balance of kilterage. I've just always loved it. Yeah, he has great sense of rhythm. I mean, like I said, you wanted to dance to almost all of these cues I felt makes you want to move. That in itself is an interesting kind of power that music can have and add to movies that we haven't really talked about before, the dancing aspect of what music can do to you. And yeah, I think Lalo Schifrin does that pretty consistently. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't have too much more to say, Andy, do you? No, no, I don't. Good. You know, before I watched this movie, the couple things I knew about it were that it had driving in it, and it took place in San Francisco. And so I was looking forward to saying, oh, cool, we get to check out some more music that's about driving around San Francisco. Yeah, I thought this was as good and in some ways, like, even better than the famous Vertigo driving around San Francisco music. I loved this driving around San Francisco music. I do not think that this is better than Vertigo. I don't think this is a better score than Vertigo. I don't think it's doing nearly as much. But for, like, if you were going to be driving around San Francisco and put some movie music in your car to beef it up for your own personal fantasy, wouldn't you put this music on? I definitely would put this music on almost any time, but there's not that much music that is actually about driving around San Francisco. There's the one cue that we talked about that's the build-up to the chase. That's the one I'm talking about, yeah. Yeah, there's that. Sure, I definitely would put that on, but there's there's only that one thing. And then there's another spot where we see him driving his car quietly down the street, and that gets a cool, you know, kind of noir-sounding driving music. But uh, it's pretty short. That's about it for driving around San Francisco music in this movie. Although, did you notice that isn't that hotel that we see at the beginning of the movie? Was it the Mark Hopkins Hotel in San Francisco? Isn't that a location where we see Madeline driving in Vertigo? I think it is. Didn't occur to me, but that's possible. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, speaking of the Mark Hopkins Hotel, I did want to ask you just things about the plot. (laughs) Did you understand the plot? Because uh, (laughs) when he's going to the hotel at the beginning... Uh Who does he want to get a message from? And what does it mean that he's not getting it? Yeah, I don't think this made sense. And I was only able to answer this question for you in retrospect because I was thinking about it too. I think that why he does that is because he is making a show of, look at me, I'm Johnny Ross in town. I see. He's just trying to get seen doing a Johnny Ross thing. Yeah, because that's part of his job as a decoy is to like... That's the whole point is for that guy to see him. I think that's right. I think the whole point was for him to get spotted. Like he makes it big show of coming in and says i'm ross Mm -hmm. johnny ross you're right thank you that was a helpful answer to something i had not been able to figure out okay i got more questions for you Uh next question chalmers (laughs) is a rich bad type guy but does he do anything criminal in this movie no no he's just you know oily and venal right 
But when they go to the hotel that's clearly not a secure location, and they say, how did you end up here? And he's like, Chalmers picked it. I, as an audience member, thought, oh, Chalmers is not to be trusted. He is not on the up and up. But then when they find out it wasn't the actual guy, we don't really get closure. But the implication is that Chalmers is surprised too. He's just not nice. (laughs) Is that this I can't explain. I'm sorry I don't have a satisfying explanation for this. I was too distracted by uh, wondering whether that was actually Chalmers or Miklos Rosa was in the movie. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't confused at all about that. I saw an interview with Robert Vaughn where he said that... uh, Looks like Miklos Rosa. Steve McQueen sent him this script and he read it and he was like, honestly, this script doesn't make any sense and I don't know why you want to do it. Yep. And Steve McQueen said, well... What do you want? And Robert Vaughn said, I at least want you to get it looked at by another writer. You need a script doctor. And Steve McQueen said, okay. And then Steve McQueen, sometime later, said, okay, we got a script doctor to look at it and sent it back to him. And Robert Vaughn looked it through and he said, nothing had been changed, but the new offer was higher. And he said, (laughs) Steve McQueen kept telling him they were editing it, but he made no changes, but he just kept upping the amount of money until Robert... He said, after the third offer, my ability to understand the script suddenly suddenly, uh, increased. But basically, Robert Vaughn didn't think the script made any sense. So I took some solace from that because... Is his character... Like, his character has ambitions of running for political office they say at one point which means that he is not currently a politician so in what sense is he managing a mob witness to a senate hearing don't know who is he i don't know doesn't make any sense i don't think it makes sense other things we didn't mention that jacqueline Bissett's character is mostly pointless <laughs> and that her breakfast is a bowl of shredded wheat with no milk that she eats <laughs> with a spoon one at a time oh also another thing we didn't mention do you know where we've seen Bullet Supervisor before? Yes. The uh, police captain was the uh, psychiatrist who explains the psychoness at the end of Psycho. Yeah, he's the guy who understands Psycho. So he probably understands this movie, too. It's a shame he didn't stand up and explain it to us at the end. <laughs> the tidbit I like is that when they're running around on the tarmac, Steve McQueen like actually gets underneath an airplane, a jetliner taxiing around on the tarmac and lies down and the plane rolls over him and it's really Steve McQueen doing that and somebody asked him why is that really you doing that couldn't they have found some dummy to put there instead (laughs) and Steve McQueen said they did yes (laughs) yeah he runs past the back of it right after it taxis past and apparently the exhaust on those things is hundreds of degrees quite dangerous for a visual that doesn't totally look thrilling but you kind of know in your head that what they're doing is dangerous so it's still kind of exciting to watch all right let's do something dangerous ourselves here let's pull out the bucket and assign ourselves a new movie all right uh it's your turn i got the bucket here next episode is our 40th episode so let's get something good no promises john the bucket does not make promises all right i'm uh reaching into number take a number from the ball machine reaching into my super cool shoulder holster here and uh let's see pick out a thing i got uh got got my hand on one here and it is the 1997 score Hmm. to titanic by james horner Oh, oh, oh yeah yeah, that'll be cool. Will it? I mean, maybe cool is the wrong word. <laughs> yeah, we just discovered how wrong a word that is for this. That it absolutely will not be cool, but that's <laughs> a thing worth talking about, yeah.
we did American Beauty from a couple years later, but mm-hmm. yeah, late 90s, that's a different moment than we've done before. We haven't talked about James Horner, and uh, he definitely is somebody right. who uh, is due an appearance on our show. Yeah, I think that the style and era and the specific composer are all things that it would be good to have an episode about. And yeah, I haven't seen Titanic in a while, but I saw it enough at the time that <laughs> I can picture some scenes. Right. You know, at this point, after we pull them, usually we're like, yeah, that'll be good. John, you don't sound like you're thrilled about it, but I think it'll be good. It'll be good. It'll be good. We should do it. We should do it. Everybody will like it. Yeah. Right? Remember in the first 25 of these, there was no question about it. They just told you you're going to have to. We had to. You had to do it. So. And I guess the bucket says we have to do this. Yeah, that's the whole point. It's going to be great. Hey, if you like the show, leave us a review in the podcast app there. And thank you very much to those who have written reviews. We see them and we're very gratified and grateful that's does that mean the same thing no slightly different okay good well we're both of those and everything in between yeah thanks for listening thanks for sticking with us thanks for your comments thanks for your suggestions reviews go on itunes comments and suggestions go on twitter at score settlers yeah thanks very much for all the feedback and people piping up with things that we get over there we appreciate that too keep cool (laughs) yeah i hope everybody is keeping cool see you next time and we'll see you next time